everyone, this is Walking Through Fire and I'm Brian Hoops. The topic we're looking at today is, almost as always, it's a, uh, it's a complicated one. Uh, it delves part in conspiracy and part in truth. It was fairly difficult to research because there haven't been any deep diving books or documentaries on today's topic, so I pieced this together as best I could based on academic research papers and various news articles. Wars are insanely complex and the people who fight them get drawn to certain loyalties and develop certain principles as well as undying determination to win. For example, on March 9th, 1974, on the Pacific island of Lubang, a former Japanese Imperial Army officer named Major Yoshimi Taniguchi sought to meet with his former subordinate Lieutenant Hiro Unanda. Unanda was what is now referred to as a Japanese holdout. Japan surrendered to the United States in September 1945, but Unoda refused to accept this narrative and mounted a guerrilla campaign with his intelligence section until his commanding officer Taniguchi finally convinced the Imperial Army officer almost 30 years later that the war was in fact over. This is just a minor example of, of what I'm calling a, quote, secret army. But imagine this happening with hundreds or thousands of soldiers. For this episode, I'll be discussing these holdout guerrilla groups, insurgencies, and clandestine operations that have occurred throughout history, and to a certain extent, still exist to this day. So with that, let's get into the behind-the-scenes militaries that have existed in contemporary times. We're going to kick this one off with the Verwolf. The Verwolf was supposed to act as a guerrilla slash insurgent resistance force to carry out the final fight against the Allies on behalf of the Nazis during the end days of World War II. As always, there are two basic camps when approaching the legitimacy of the existence of this group. One is this was merely a propaganda campaign meant to scare the occupying allied forces, and the other being that there were legitimate talks within the surrendering Nazi army that an internal Nazi-based coup-slash-guerrilla resistance would be mounted. I think we're all familiar with how brutal the Nazis were, but at the end of the war, the most loyal German soldiers were trying to salvage what they could, being that the Soviets were on their front doorstep and knew they were about to get imminent payback for all the horrible shit the Nazis did to them. Now, I'm not trying to justify what the Soviets did to Germany, Berlin in particular, because there was a lot of summary executions, rapes, etc. of a lot of common people. But it needs to be understood that all sides on World War II committed horrible atrocities, the United States included. I'm more trying to illustrate the mindset of these people during this period. The Verwolf was more than likely a fictional army group that never quite caught traction. The idea of the group originated with Reinhard Heydrich with the intention of creating a guerrilla force of the most elite Nazi commandos to keep the German war effort going pending the, cap the capitulation of Nazi Germany. In early 1945, Joseph Goebbels began a series of radio broadcasts that hinted that the Allied forces of an oncoming Nazi insurgency. From what I could find, this type of insurgency never fully materialized or was supported by any Nazi high command. 
I believe Nazi command at this point saw the writing on the wall and knew that it would be better to surrender and start rebuilding Germany versus taking the task of carrying out Hitler's proposed vision of world domination. The actual Verwolf itself started as Operation Verwolf that was initiated by Heinrich Himmler. As mentioned before, Reinhard Heydrich conceptualized the plan, but Himmler was the one who actually kicked it off, being a Heydrich was assassinated by Czech commandos in 1942. The Verwolf never got traction. Beginning in 1944, it is said that when Himmler started taking volunteers to create a secret unit that would be, take the final stand for the Nazis, the actions carried out by the Verwolf is heavily contested. I could only find four actions that may have been connected to Verwolf operations. These included the bombings of different Allied occupying forces and assassination of some higher-ranking Allied officers. Overall, my thoughts on the Verwolf and this topic I might revisit for a future episode, but I, I just kind of believe that the group existed on paper but never actually or formally organized and would never been able to carry out a formal resistance to Allied forces. So moving on, we're going to look at a group that was bred out of the French army during the Algerian War of Independence. This was a right-wing French nationalist group that primarily enlisted members of the French Foreign Legion that was stringent on maintaining French control of Algeria. It was known as the OAS, in French that is Organisation Amès Secrète, or the Secret Army Organization in English, which from a branding perspective, they were pretty on point. So for this episode, I'm not going to go into the full details of the play-by-play for the French-Algerian War, but this conflict kicked off towards the end of World War II. I mentioned before on the Idi Imam episode, the state of the world post-World War II which in turn ties into modern colonialism with European countries in that the war itself dealt a major blow to the status quo of colonizing nations such as France and the United Kingdom to give a short list. To recall though, colonized nations such as Algeria and French Indochina, which is now modern day Vietnam, saw the defeats of their colonizing nations early in the war as the moment when they realized, hey, we can fuck these dudes up, and took a nod to take up arms against their colonizing overlords. Algeria, which for those who may not know, is a northern African country located on the Mediterranean. The Algerian War of Independence started in November of 1954 and lasted until March of 1962. The war formally kicked off when the FLN, or Armée de Libération Nationale, or National Liberation Front, who was the main Algerian resistance group, attacked French military and government buildings slash personnel. When the initial actions of the FLN kicked off in November of 1954, a section of the FLN that was located in Cairo, Egypt, announced the independence of Algeria via radio broadcast. As with many other post-colonial nations, the Algerian rebels sought self-determination and were tired of living as second-class citizens within their own country. Throughout the course of the war, the fighting between the French army and the FLN went back and forth with French forces primarily in rural deserts of Algeria while maintaining control of large urban centers. The tide began to turn on the French 
after the Battle of Algiers that lasted from 1956 and ended in September of 1957. Though historians will say that the French won the Battle of Algiers, trouble was looming on the French home front. There's a general consensus amongst French citizens in mainland France that questioned why the army was aggressively fighting to maintain control of overseas colonies. Party politics within the French Republic caused rifts and divides, which led to what is known as the May 1958 crisis. The crisis was centered around army commanders who felt they were inadequately supported by the French government. Tensions between government officials and the military grew when the general overseeing the French side of the Algerian war, General Raoul Salan, carpet-bombed a village called Sakat that was hiding FLN fighters. The carpet bombing led to a significant amount of civilian casualties, and I can't sit here and defend his actions, but to a degree, the FLN was an insurgent-slash-guerrilla warfare group, which the French army, who was fresh out of World War II, did not have the knowledge on how to fight or approach such a group. The French were, for most parts, trying to fight the war as if they were trying to fight against the Nazis. This wasn't a symmetric war where there were two formal sides wearing uniforms and having large-scale battles. The idea of asymmetric war was still a new concept in the minds of all military leaders around the world, and given the recent U.S. wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, there is still no clear-cut solution. The main divide came between the French army and French Algerian citizens that were known as Piedinors, which is basically a, an ethnic group of mixed French and Algerian citizens who favored French colonial rule. The Piedinors were considered to be a minority of sorts. By 1959, the Piedinors and the Colons or French settlers began forming a group called Front National Francois or FNF. The FNF began arming themselves and the group in early 1960 set up barricades in the center of the city of Algiers and started taking pop shots at police officers with the army sitting on the sidelines watching. I was reading through this and thought of the U.S. Capitol riots back in January 2021 and thought, oh, they're kind of like the Proud Boys first generation. French army officers began joining the ranks of the Colons and the FNF, and this was the beginning of the OAS. General Salon and General Marie-André Zella were some of the higher-ranking officials to defect to the OAS. French President Charles de Gaulle had somewhat of an idea as to what was going on in Algeria and relieved the commanders, but by this time the French colonial government that was sympathetic towards de Gaulle's cause had basically fled Algeria to mainland France. So I point this out because this kind of sets the stage for what was going on in Algeria at the time. The FLN, or the Algerian rebels, have basically made a makeshift government at this time, but there's also French troops that are on the ground that have formed the OAS at this time, so it kind of leads up to this like final showdown. In January of 1961, a survey of French and Algerian citizens 
was polled as to how they felt about allowing Algerians to self-determine slash be granted independence. Of those who responded, 75% were in favor of Algerian independence. The remaining 25%, however, were primarily Piedmont and French army soldiers. Most tension in the first three years of the war rose between Piedmont and French soldiers, who at this point were beginning to grow weary of fighting a war and not being supported by their government. The OAS began recruiting primarily from the French Foreign Legion Parachute Regiment, which had their home base in Algeria and did the brunt of the fighting during the Algerian conflict. For those who don't know anything about the French Foreign Legion, it is essentially an army within the French army comprised entirely of enlisted foreign volunteers and commanded by French officers. It still exists to this day, but had a bit of a bad reputation because being they only take foreign volunteers, by the closing days of World War II, their ranks suddenly became filled with a lot of Germans for some weird reason. But I'm sure everyone listening can probably connect the dots on that one. The creation of the OAS opened the short-lived Third Front within the Algerian War. One side was the FLN, or the Algerian rebels. One side was the OAS, who was proactively fighting the FLN and the Algerian rebels. And then you had the mainland French army that was sort of in an observation position, just kind of overlooking the fighting and doing a little bit of the fighting themselves against the FLN. Charles de Gaulle had been addressing the OAS in a tongue-in-cheek manner by public addresses to the military, reminding them they should maintain loyalty to the French government's decision to grant Algeria independence. Salon and the OAS had concocted an elaborate and kind of fucking stupid plan. Uh, First, the OAS would drop French Foreign Legion recruited paratroopers into Paris, Next, the paratroopers would overrun the city and they would arrest Charles de Gaulle and assassinate any liberal government officials that stood in the way. There was one flaw. The OAS was made up of soldiers, not pilots. So when the OAS approached the French Air Force pilots who had the planes that could drop paratroopers into Paris... The pilots immediately were like, uh, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll help you out, and then immediately got in contact with their chain of command. Then the French Navy bombarded the shit out of the OAS coastal positions, which was on the Mediterranean Sea, and sent in ground forces to expel the OAS insurgents who either went into hiding or surrendered. The OAS then signed off on a peace treaty with the FLN and by February 1962 had been formally dissolved. As for legionnaire paratroopers that were involved with the OAS, they were forced out of Algeria, the ones that could be tracked down, as the French military made their general withdrawal. The French government, who was enraged by the legionnaires' actions, declared there will be no formal legionnaire outpost on mainland France, and to this day, the main French Foreign Legion outpost is located on the island of Coruscant, off the southern coast of mainland France, the only post 
of the French Foreign Legion is recruiting stations on mainland France because that's how you have to join. You go to mainland France and knock on the door of the French Foreign Legion and say, I want to join. This, however, was not the end of OAS activities. In August of 1962, Jean Bastien Thierry, a former French Air Force pilot, led a group of four in an assassination attempt of Charles de Gaulle. The plot failed as they tried firing submachine guns at de Gaulle's motorcade and missed, which led to the arrest and execution of Bastien Thierry. This incident was inspiration for the plot to the book that was later turned into a movie in the early 1970s called The Day of the Jackal, which I, I'm going to sit here and say this, go and watch the day of the jackal or read the book it is really really good but yeah that is the shorthand account of the oas and the algerian war of independence and this definitely will be a topic that i revisit in the future the next group that we're going to be discussing isn't so much a secret army but more of a covert tactic used by the U.S. military to do some shit that would probably be deemed illegal by Geneva Convention standards. This practice is called sheep dipping. When I first heard the phrase, I thought it was some urban dictionary sex maneuver. It sounds like when you're, you know, blasting your partner doggy style and you try to, like, put your, like, balls in, you know, their ass. Like, dude, I tried sheep dipping my chick last night and uh, it did not go over well. The general practice of sheep dipping is distancing a U.S. military service member from their active status to operate in countries that the U.S. may not have permission to operate in or to pull off certain clandestine operations. Basically, from the accounts I could find, a soldier will would be approached and asked to perform a particular mission, usually by someone, say, from the CIA. This allows the government to utilize military manpower and training without having the blood on their hands and giving them a freedom to operate outside of conventional means. One thing I'm learning from researching this topic is that the majority of CIA operatives aren't like the bearded shooters that you see in movies or TV shows. Operators like that do exist, but it is very, it is a very, very small percentage of the overall CIA. They do have a paramilitary unit, granted, but uh, it's not a large part of the CIA. The CIA is one of the smallest government organizations that exists today. The CIA itself is more of an intelligence collection and dissemination organization. They more depend on proxies to do their main operations. In the 1960s, Southeast Asia was a hotbed of civil wars in countries like Cambodia and, more importantly, Vietnam's next-door neighbor, Laos. For those who may not be familiar with the American war in Vietnam, the U.S. essentially inherited this conflict after France withdrew its army after failing to maintain its once colonial property. Vietnam was split by the Communist North supported by China and the Soviet Union and the, quote, Democratic South, which from a military perspective was supported by Australia, the United States, and New Zealand. 
The first major accounts of soldiers being sheep dipped started in the first few years of the Vietnam War. The most infamous case is that of Lemasite 85 or Lemasite 85, depending on which YouTube video you watch. Uh, this this was a remote base in Laos, and one of the main reasons it was chosen was because, from a tactical perspective, Laos primarily borders North Vietnam. Lima Site 85 on paper was considered a weather station. In reality, the United States Air Force coordinated with the Hmong soldiers of the Laotian Army, which was currently in the middle of a civil war against Laotian communist forces, to secure a remote base in which the United States Air Force and the CIA could accurately coordinate bombing raids into North Vietnam. The United States gave planes to the Laotian Air Force and in exchange they assisted in weakening North Vietnam so the U.S. could fly targeting missions as well as round-the-clock bombing raids. The site was manned at any given time with roughly 20 U.S. sheep-dipped Air Force personnel and CIA paramilitary operators while base security overall was maintained by Hmong soldiers of the Laotian Army. I found a Lima Site 85 memorial webpage and they explained the U.S. airmen were selected out of an elite unit that were close to their 20-year retirement mark. For those who may not be as akin, in the U.S. military, you only have to serve 20 years and you can retire with full benefits. These airmen were told that they were going to be part of a special operation to help with the American effort in Vietnam, and they couldn't do it in a military capacity, so they were flown to Washington, D.C. and given discharge papers to sign and were given simultaneously contracts to sign on as, quote, technicians for the Lockheed Martin Air Corporation and would be working out of Laos. After signing the contracts, the men were then flown to Laos via Air America, which was a CIA front company that claimed to be a charter flight agency, and linked up with their CIA handlers and sent out to Lima Site 85. Their entire mission was to act in the capacity as they did when they were in the Air Force, operating communications and air trafficking equipment to coordinate airstrikes. Lima Site 85 was formally established in 1966 and carried out over 500 sorties, which are like air raid and recon missions. However, by 1968, the site had been discovered by PAVN forces, which was pretty much like the North Vietnamese Special Forces, as well as pro-communist Laotian forces. Although Lima's site... 8-5 was located a mile above sea level on a mountain and surrounded by thick jungle. The Hmong forces meant to provide force protection were greatly outnumbered by opposing forces. There was about 300 Hmong to defend Lima Site 85 and roughly 20 U.S. personnel. 
but remember, no one really knew the Americans were there, so there wasn't air support, mortars, artillery, and whatnot. The North Vietnamese and Laotian Communist forces started encircling Lamasite 8-5 beginning in March of 1968. The formal battle of Lamasite 8-5 began around March 9th, 1968. The Communist forces staged and began an artillery barrage that night and that was followed by infantry assaults. The Hmong soldiers defending Lima Site 85 were essentially commanded by CIA paramilitary officers and lost ground very, very quick. They were able to keep the North Vietnamese Army and pro-communist Laotian forces at bay long enough for Air America helicopters to extract the few American personnel that weren't killed. After withdrawal, the American, quote, technicians, the PAVN occupied the base for a few days, but then after, like, rummaging through everything, they just abandoned it. This is one example of sheep dipping, but there were a few other sites, such as this during Vietnam, conducting similar or different operations. I did not do a deep dive into MACV Saga, or what is known as Military Assistance Command Vietnam Studies and Observations Group because that is, uh, I mean, I keep saying this throughout this, but that's going to be another episode on its own. An interesting modern-day version of sheep dipping occurred back in 2011, and that is with the killing of Osama bin Laden, And that is when Navy SEALs, accompanied by CIA operatives, went to Abbottabad, Pakistan, and took out the uh, Al-Qaeda leader. But that, I mean, that, that in itself is, you know, can be contested. But this overall is just a general overview of what sheep dipping is. The last group that I'm going to touch on came about in modern times and they're known as the little green men or also known as the polite people i'm going to briefly discuss this because it's not much of a conspiracy and pretty obvious who is behind all of this the first time the little green men were mentioned by big media was during a speech that u.s general mark milley gave during an rotc graduation During the speech, which was held at Norwich University, General Milley gave a warning to the types of issues that the future leaders may be facing. He was quoted by saying, you'll be dealing with hybrid armies, you'll be dealing with little green men. This was around 2016. I remember this got a short buzz in social media where I'd seen some people that were kind of like, this general just gave a definitive proof that there's uh, aliens, as well as shitty clickbait blogs doing what shitty clickbait blogs tend to do, and ran hacky headlines like, quote, U.S. Army confirms existence of aliens. However, General Milley was less referring to little green men from an alien perspective and more referring to the thousands of unknown soldiers who showed up in the Crimea region when the Russian army invaded the Ukrainian peninsula back in 2014, sparking what is now referred to as the Crimean Crisis. 
As I mentioned at the beginning of this section, it's pretty obvious who the little green men or polite people are and what they were in Crimea to do. To give a little more background to those who may not be as familiar to the Crimean conflict, which admittedly I'm still trying to understand myself, to give the highest overview, it kind of seemed like Putin pulled a Hitler where Hitler started annexing regions of Austria, Poland, and whatnot. Hitler justified this by saying that there was political unrest in these regions and they also contained large German populations and wanted to help secure them. Putin essentially did the same thing with Crimea, which is located on the eastern side of the Ukraine on the Baltic Sea and borders Russia as well. Putin explained because of the political unrest and the quote uncertainty of the safety of the primarily Russian population, he thought it'd be cool to just move the army in and annex it. I met this Ukrainian dude when I was drinking at this bar back when all of this kicked off and he was telling me that Crimea was a pretty strong economic region and shrugged it off as fuck it this is a uh, this is rich people fighting for their own city. Nonetheless around the end of February of 2014 beginning of March unidentified foreign troops had entered the region. Some Ukrainian high-ranking military officers disappeared only to reappear a few weeks later, stating they defected to the Russian army. And Western media headlines had the fucking dumbest reaction to this. One example of this was Colonel Andrei Andrushin. He led a regiment against Russian special operations forces and pro-Ukrainian defense forces at the Battle of Simferopol. This was the first incident in the Crimean conflict where blood was actually shed. How the war kicked off was really odd. Russian forces began entering Crimea in February of 2014 and were just kind of chilling while Western media was running their, quote, who is this unknown army in Crimea stories. The Ukraine spun their military up, but it seemed like they were hesitant to lean against the Russians. At Simmerful, Colonel Andrushin was holding command of a 20-man topographic unit at their headquarters building. I would think this would be probably be like a headquarters building, and when you factor in that this was a non-combat unit, they probably didn't have a ton of weapons or ammo on hand. Maybe like three rifles and a couple of magazines, but the topographic unit of the Ukrainian army uh, were not prepared to carry out a full-on fight in probably like an office-type building. Anyway, the unknown invading force, Russia, stormed the building, killing three Ukrainian soldiers and capturing the colonel, who would later come out as a defector to Russia. The unknown soldiers photographed after, after this had no patches or name tags, but some did clearly have the Russian flag on their body armor. There are stories I came across from established media and press sources such as B such as the British Broadcasting Corporation, BBC, to fringe infotainment media like Vice News that were running headlines like, who are these mysterious soldiers showing up in the Ukraine? People wonder why I'm sarcastic against the media, and this is just one of many examples I could cite. After the invasion of Finnish public publication I found called Finnish Soldier, which is kind of like the Finnish version of the American Stars and Stripes, had an analyst examine the photos of these, quote, little green men and identified all the weapons, uniforms, and equipment they had were all newly implemented Russian camouflage patterns as well as weapons. So yeah, it's safe to say the little green men were Russian, more than likely special forces or airborne troops. 
The Russian soldiers were also referred to as the polite people because the Russian soldiers were seen in early stages of the conflict taking selfies with Crimean citizens and petting dogs of pedestrians as well as playing with cats as photo ops. Russia played it off as saying they might have a military presence in Crimea but claimed the accounts of the polite people and little green men were merely Ukrainian militants. This is immediately dismissed because barely a year later Russia unveiled a monument to the polite people and little green men in Belogorsk, a town that is in far east Russia. The conflict in Crimea is technically going on to this day as a low level or soft conflict. What it will turn into I'm not fully sure. I could see Crimea becoming sort of a uh, puppet state of the Russian government, but who knows, because it seems like Russia's military presence has kind of died down, at least from a media perspective. But that has been my episode on secret armies, so I hope you enjoyed it. I am going to try to release more consistently now that I've uh, now that I finished uh, graduate school. Uh, that was one of the one of the things that was holding me back. I was just kind of hampered down with like schoolwork as well as just stuff with my full time job as well. So I appreciate everyone for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. But we will, uh, you know, we'll meet next time. I have a couple of episodes in the queue and. And uh, we will, will, you'll hear from me soon.